Great Williamsburg Christmas tradition known as the Grand Illumination. It's such a great tradition up there. It was even on the front page of the Virginian Pilot last Monday morning. Grand Illumination had a big picture of all the fireworks. And I was first introduced to this tradition as a freshman at William & Mary. When I was getting bundled up and ready to head out in the cold, I had a bitter and jaded upperclassman who had spent too much time in the library. He said, you shouldn't go. I said, why not? It's called the Grand Illumination. He said, that's exactly why you shouldn't go. It is neither grand nor illuminating. But I took his words with a grain of salt and I headed out and faced the cold. And I found it, although there is no one moment when the light switch turns and all the lights come on, that doesn't happen. And that's where people kind of get a little bitter sometimes about the event. It is grand. It is illuminating. It is the most beautiful display of fireworks in a beautiful setting. There are fifes and drummers fifing and drumming, and there are these little fire pots. Anyone seen those little fire pots? And they, you want one in your front yard. They just look so cool, and they're these metal hanging baskets, and the wood burns like no other wood you've ever seen. And it's just a great night with everyone drinking hot chocolate and apple cider walking around the beautiful historic area in Williamsburg. And as I stood there, like I've stood many times before, right before the fireworks begin, a voice comes over the loudspeaker. And he attempts to explain the tradition. He says in the 1700s, when Williamsburg was the capital, he says that whenever they would entertain kings and queens or governors or foreign dignitaries, they would have what they would call a grand illumination. And a big celebration and a march with fife and drum and trumpet blast and fireworks to light up the sky to welcome that king or that queen or that governor or whoever it might be they had to light up the sky and have a grand celebration in order to welcome them. And he said, if they did that for human kings and queens of this earth, we still continue to do that as we welcome the king of kings into our midst this Christmas season. And it sounds so beautiful. And it sounds so poetic. And you think, wow, I want to be a part of something like that. But it made me ask a question. And the question was, why did Jesus come as a child? Because as I watched the fireworks go off, as I heard the fife and the drum playing, as I watched the throngs of people gathered there, thousands upon thousands of people on the palace lawn in front of the governor's, in front of the, the governor's mansion, I just thought to myself, why wouldn't Jesus have come like this? Why wouldn't he have come with fireworks? Why didn't he come as a grand king with a horse and with a chariot? Or maybe in modern society, maybe he could have come as a billionaire making big business deals. Maybe he could have come as an NFL football star. But I would want to enter the world like this with all this fanfare and the thousands of uh, onlookers watching. But Jesus didn't enter this world like that. The king of kings chose a different type of grand illumination. And it happened in a lonely stable in Bethlehem with no one there to witness it but common shepherds and farm animals. And so this morning as we consider that question together, why did Jesus come as a child? I would like to put forth the idea that maybe Jesus coming as a child is not just descriptive of how he came. But maybe it's prescriptive for all of us. 
to help us understand something very deep about the very heart of our faith and that we might need to come to God as a child, as Jesus came to us as a child in Bethlehem. And so as we ask this question, why did Jesus come as a child, I invite you to look with me at Mark chapter 10, where I think we find our answer in verses 13 and following. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. And he took the little children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. And so as Jesus invites us to consider the example of little children receiving the kingdom, I decided to take his admonishment seriously. And I considered my own children to see was there something in my own children that Jesus wanted me to imitate was there something about my own children that he wanted me to embrace, an attitude, a disposition of the heart? What is it about children that Jesus wants us to emulate? And so I began my search one early morning when I woke up and I saw that my daughter's uh, Sophia, that her door was still closed. Now you've got to understand, Sophia, she is just plain wild. She does not like to settle down. She's always kind of moving and always kind of looking for the next thing and always asking the question, where are we going next? Where are we going next? We, we took her to, to Disneyland this summer. And as we drove back to, uh, to the house where we were staying, she said, what else are we going to do today? I said, that's it. That's all we're doing today. We are now going to bed. We, that, that's it. So she, just, she always wants to push it to the next thing. And so when I saw that her door was closed, I thought, this is just an opportunity for me that I wanted to take advantage of. I just want to see her little body still, not moving, quiet, just, just like when she, was, when she was a baby. I just wanted to go back to that time when she, just, she was a little bit less complicated of a person. And so I began to crack her door and look in, and there she was, not sleeping at all but working at her desk. Now, my daughter has this desk. It's really an old chest that she calls her desk, and she sits in front of it, and she's always talking about all the work she has to do at her desk. I said, Sophia, you're four years old. You got the rest of your life to work. Just relax. No, Daddy, I gotta do, I gotta do some work. I gotta get some work done. And you say, what is she working on? Well, she owns a bookstore. It's called Books Everywhere, and she runs it out of her room. I'm, I'm serious. She calls it Books Everywhere, she runs it out of her room. I'm getting nervous that I'm going to have to notify the colonial officials because I'm in violation. I'm not in line with the historic status. I don't know if they had bookstores like this back then or not. But, uh, you know, she's, she runs this bookstore and she says, Daddy, books everywhere is not open yet. I'm writing, I'm writing some new books that I'm going to sell today at Books Everywhere. I said, I said okay, Books Everywhere is not open yet. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you alone. I'll let you, let you write the books. And I went back to make my breakfast in the kitchen. Now my daughter Olivia gets up and she gets excited to see her sister. And so she goes, she goes and she, she opens the door and she kind of bursts in and say, good morning, Sophia. And Sophia goes and she slams the door in Olivia's face and she says, books everywhere is closed, Olivia. <laughs> books everywhere has irregular hours, you see. You have to beware of sudden and unexpected closings of books everywhere. 
But I warned Sophia against treating Olivia poorly because really there's only three customers and so if you eliminate Olivia, it's 33% of your customer base just gone. And so as we examine children in our own lives or just viewing them in the community, we know from our experience that children's attitudes and their behavior are a mixed bag at best. Children are sometimes selfish. Children are sometimes impatient. But Jesus' statement is declarative. He declares, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Therefore, I believe it's exceedingly important that we get to the bottom of what Jesus actually meant when he said, little child. What exactly about children is Jesus hoping that we will incorporate into our lives? Because obviously, he doesn't want us to be like children in everything. So as we look at our passage here, the very next verse becomes very important. It's verse 17, and it says this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the reason this verse is so important is because in the Gospels, I have a little phrase that I use with my interns when uh, I welcome some interns to work with me in the summer. Part of their job is to sit with me on Friday afternoons as I develop my sermons and I try and walk with them and, and show them the, the process by which you go about studying a passage and then moving it into a sermon. And one of the first lessons I teach the intern class is this, context is king. Especially in the Gospels, context is king. See, in the Gospels, oftentimes what you're reading is heavily influenced by what happened before the passage or what happened after the passage. And in this case, we see Jesus talking about little children. In the very next verse, there's this man that runs up to Jesus. You see, Jesus intends to teach us the key attribute of little children that he wants us to embrace by way of contrast. He's going to contrast the life of this man with the lives of children because the attribute of this man, the key attribute of this man is in direct conflict and contrast with the key attribute of little children that Jesus wants to help us see. As we unpack the life of this man, God's call on our lives will become clear. And the reason that Jesus had to come as a baby will become even clearer. And so we look at this next passage here. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. See, Jesus is setting this man up from the beginning. He's setting him up to get at the heart of the issue. He's setting him up to cut through his excuses so he can see what is really holding him back from following God. And it comes in the answer that Jesus gives to the man's question about eternal life. The man says, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, just obey the commandments. And, and he lists off six commandments. 
But most of us know from growing up in American society or reading the Bible on our own that there are not just six commandments. In fact, there are ten commandments. So why would Jesus only list six commandments for this man? The answer lies in how the commandments were given to Moses in the first place. See, God gave Moses the commandments, if you go back to the book of, the, of, of Exodus, God gave him the commandments on two tablets. And it wasn't because God couldn't shrink the font size to get it to all fit on one tablet. Have you ever thought about this? Why did God give Moses two different tablets? This is why a list of the Ten Commandments that just goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 on a piece of paper, 1 to 10, is not the most accurate representation of the Ten Commandments. When you see the Ten Commandments, my hope is that you can see them on these two tablets and understand why, other than font size, God delivered these commandments in two tablets. The key is that the, t the commandments relate to two different relationships. The first four commandments all have to do with your relationship with God. It's how to put God first in your life. And the second, uh, the second set of commandments, the final six, starting with commandment five, honor your father and mother, all have to do with your relationship with other people. How do you stay in and maintain right relationships with your fellow man, those people around you? You see, when Jesus looks at this man and says, obey the commandments, he gives him the six commandments on that second tablet. He gives him the six commandments that all have to do with relating to your fellow man. But he leaves out anything that has to do with God. And this man just takes the bait and runs with it. He says, well, I've... I've kept all these commandments since I was a young boy. I've, I, I have got great relationships with those around me. Jesus says, oh, you do? Well, there's actually one thing you lack, and it's really four things he lacks, but they're all summed up in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter that this man has many gods before God in his life. This man is relying on his own wealth, as we learn in this passage. He's relying on his own power, as we learn in the Gospel of Luke. This man is not just uh, wealthy, he's also a ruler. So this man has become quite savvy at maneuvering his way uh, through his life with wealth and power and influence. And so Jesus says, you know what? Let's put aside how good you think your relationships are with other people for a moment. And let me ask you about your relationship with God. Because he says, why don't you go ahead and sell all that stuff that you have. Give it away and then come and follow me. Jesus helps this man see his real issue. Basically, Jesus is asking him this question. Are you ready to rely on God or are you content relying on something else? Now fill in the blank for this man. Like I said, it was wealth, it was influence, it was power. But ask yourself that question. Are you ready to rely on God? Or is there something else in your life that you're banking on coming through in case the whole God thing doesn't work out? This man has a decision to make. And as you see, the end of the story, it says, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This man's decision was to walk away. He chooses to rely on something else. You see, the key characteristic of this man is radical self-reliance. In contrast, the key characteristic of the little children that Jesus speaks of is 
radical reliance. Two Thursdays ago, it was uh, what parents refer to as one of those nights at the Simone house. Just nothing was quite going right. And we just thought, you know, let's just call it a day, get the kids in bed, and start this whole thing called parenting over again in the morning. That's right. Every night there's a reset button. It's called putting the kids in bed. And so we're trying to put the kids in bed. And Sophia was arguing about not wanting to take a bath. And so I, I gave in. I said, Sophia, don't, don't worry about taking a bath. Just, let's just get dressed and, and just, just get in bed. And I, I walked away for a minute. And I came back to see that Sophia uh, was taking a bath with her sister. It just so happened that she was taking the bath in all of her clothes. So there she is in all of her clothes in the bathtub, and I'm starting to lose it. And I said, Sophia, get out of the bathtub. And she comes out, and she just looks like a mess. You know, the clothing is all wet, and she's dripping water all over the bathroom floor. And then I had to clean a wound that she had, and, you know, the, 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 the medicine, it stung. And so she's dripping wet, and her, her arm is, is stinging. And I said, Sophia, just, just go to your room, put your pajamas on it, and Daddy will pick some stories, and, and we'll, we'll get to bed. And so she goes into her room and she's put her shirt on and she's pulling her, her pants up and she's sitting right next to her, her dresser. And as she pulls her pants up, she goes to stand up and she smashes her face on the dresser. I mean, it was bad. I mean, it was one of those things where you, go, where you heard it and it was just her little nose just right up against the dresser. And every mother in this room knows the reaction that she had after she smashed her face. She looked up and she cried out that one word that'll just make everything better. Mommy! She started screaming, Mommy! Mommy! And Nina comes running over, puts her arms around her and holds her and rocks her until she feels better. You see, younger children, like the little children in our passage, they have no pretense that they can do things on their own. When she smashed her face, she didn't say, You know what? I'm going to see if I can rely on myself to fix this one. I'm just going to, Dad, you stay over there. I'll take it from here. I got this. You see, younger children have no pretense that they can do things on their own. They're constantly asking for help. They're constantly asking for assistance. My favorite is the old line, I can't walk. Oh, really? You've been walking for years now. You just, you forgot. I can't, Dad, I can't walk. I just can't do it. And, and, and I... I took notes. On October 31st, I saw lots of children that had no problem walking for hours around the neighborhood. So anytime I get the, I can't walk, I'm going to bring it back. I said, I, I, I recall this evening when you just had legs that could go forever and ever. Kids are constantly making their needs known. I am hungry. I am thirsty. I am tired. You see, little children actually embody several of the paradoxes that Jesus spoke of when he talked about his kingdom. Jesus came as a, as a baby and then he grew up as, to the, be this man. He talked about the way God's kingdom worked and it's paradoxical. See, in God's kingdom, the weak are actually strong. In God's kingdom, the poor are actually rich. The least are actually the greatest and the last are actually the first. Children embody all of those characteristics. But most importantly... Children know that they must rely on someone other than themselves for survival. In other words, they know there is a king in this world, and they know that they are not it. The man in the story was radically self-reliant. Little children 
are radically reliant. And Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem to show us that no one is exempt from relying on the Father for their every need. He could have come as a king. He could have come as a billionaire. But he came as a baby to show us what radical reliance on the Father truly looks like. This morning, if you would like to move from self-reliance to a deeper level of reliance on God, I invite you to consider Jesus' three-pronged challenge to the man in the story. Jesus gives him three instructions. He says, you've got to sell, you've got to give, and you've got to follow. Sell, give, and follow. These three commands from Jesus serve to all put us in a position where we can be radically reliant on God. You see, in order to be reliant on God, you must first create the conditions in your life where reliance will flourish. And it's these three commands that will help get us in position. Positioning is very important in business. Positioning is very important in sports. As I learned uh, as a young man uh, on the JJV soccer team, it was the first sport I ever played that, uh, in middle school. And I never played soccer before. I didn't grow up as now the four- and five-year-old kids out there learning the game so young. It was just, I liked sports. I was in seventh grade. It was the first chance we could play. I tried out for the JJV team, which stands for Junior Junior Good. It's for the people that really are beginners. And uh, I, I made the team, and I was playing defense for the team. I was a fullback. And every time there would be a corner kick or any time somebody would come uh, close to the goal, the coach would yell at me. He would say, Simone, I need you goal side. And I would go, got it, coach. I'm going goal side. And then 10 seconds later, Simone, get goal side. I would go, yup, I'm, I'm shifting to goal side right now, coach. And then they'd have a corner kick. Simone, I told you, I need you goal side. I just couldn't admit to the coach I had no idea what goal side meant. So years went by as I played 7th grade, 8th grade, and I tried out in my high school, uh, my high school years, uh, in my ninth grade, freshman year, I tried out for the, the JV team. I made the team, and I played fullback again. I was on defense. It was the first corner kick of the year, and it was a different coach. And all of a sudden, I heard the same words. He said, Travis, can you get goal side for me? I thought, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble here. It's happening again. So at halftime, I went up to the coach. I said, coach, I should have asked this a long time ago. I really needed some clarification on some terms. And uh, I'm sorry, but um, can you tell me what goal side means? And he looked at me and said, are you kidding? He said, goal side is the fundamental principle for defense in the game of soccer. I said, well, could you just run through it one time? So here it is. If this is the man that you are marking and the drum cage is the goal, you want to be on the goal side of your man. In other words, you want to be standing between your man and the goal so they, have, so they don't have a clear path to the goal. In order to get to the goal, they have to go through you. The opposite of goal side is what's called man side. If I was man side, I'm on the, my, my man side of the goal, and then he can just go ahead and score. So that's why it's very important that you get in position and you play goal side in the game of soccer. And so if it's important to be in the right position in sports, in business, how much more important 
is it to be in the right position when we're seeking to be reliant on God? And so I think Jesus' three-pronged challenge is what we all need to consider in order to get in position. And so I have three questions to help us make this application in our lives today. The first one is this. What do you need to sell? What do you need to sell? And oftentimes we think about what we need to sell. Our, our first inclination is to go monetary. It's to go finances or to go stuff. But I think it's also important <clears throat> to think in terms of our own character when we think of what we need to sell. Where are the crooks and crannies of our character that we don't want to let God into because we're just too afraid or ashamed of how, we're, uh, how, how we've set up our lives in that particular area? For me, one of those things is, is, is pride. It's a common issue that people have. Or the, the desire that, that you know, people like me. You know, doing things not because you're supposed to do them, but doing things in order to get the approval of others. As I was preparing this message even, I was excited because I, I, I wanted to have some quotes from a, from a great new book that's out there. So I ran out and I bought the Steve Jobs book and I started reading it, reading it. And then halfway through I said, this book's really boring. I haven't gotten anything out of it. And God kind of whispered to me. He said, you bought it for the wrong reason. You bought it so people would think, oh, you're, 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 you're hip. You're on top of the culture. He said, you're speaking on reliance on God. Don't rely on the Steve Jobs book. Don't rely on people liking you. Rely on me. So think not just in terms of stuff, but think in, think in terms of your character. There's something inside of you that you need to sell. You need to get rid of. You need to forgive someone for something. But also, as you think of it in terms of your stuff or your finances, it applies there too. Jesus isn't necessarily, he might be, he isn't necessarily saying, you know, go put everything on eBay. But there might be something you have to put on eBay because our, our, our proclivity is to look at this passage and go, oh, stuff was that guy's problem. Like none of us have any problems in this room with stuff, okay? We can dismiss the practical, tangible uh, element of selling as well. And I don't think we need to dismiss that. We need to think, is there something in my life that I need to get rid of? Is there a, 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 a deeper level of giving that God is calling me to? Or maybe it's a disposition of the heart when it comes to your stuff and you're saying, gosh, I, you know, I, need, I know that my name is physically on the deed of my home, but I need to sign that deed over to Jesus. And act in my home as if it were Jesus's home and welcome people into my home as if it were Jesus's home. And so when you think about selling something, I also want to make a clarification about what, uh, what ownership is really all about in this world. I learned a great lesson about ownership right here at Spring Branch Community Church. I'm so thankful for this church. And if I ever get asked to do something for this church, I try my best to clear my schedule and, and do it. Because this church has given so much to me in terms of perspective uh, on how I look at life and how I look at my faith. But it, it actually still gives so much uh, to my church, the church where I serve in Williamsburg, in terms of ministry. We had 36th grade students spend the night for four nights in your student ministry uh, lounge this past summer as they were serving in inner city Norfolk. We take mission trips with Orphan Network. This is just a congregation that, that gives and gives and gives to other churches, to the church that I serve. And it's given so much to me, including this understanding of what ownership is really all about. So as you consider what you need to sell, I want you to hear this story. 
that I heard a long time ago here at Spring Branch. It was back in the days before there was this beautiful facility to meet in. The church had no building. All it had was a piece of property. And the church was meeting at Corporate Landing Elementary School. The property was a great piece of property. It was right here in the heart of Virginia Beach, one of the last large tracts of land in the heart of Virginia Beach. And this church was able to purchase it. The problem is the church was much smaller back then. It was very expensive. It was a million dollars. A million dollars is a lot for a congregation of this size. But it was a, a real lot of money for the congregation when it was the size it was all the way back then. And the bank said, you know, if you're really going to build this building, you're going to have to pay off the property first. Because you can then use the property as collateral to get the loan for the building. So the church was, was, was giving and giving, but you know, it, was, it was slow. We'd only raised about $250,000 to cover the million dollars that we needed to pay off this property before we could start building the building. And my dad came to me uh, that Sunday morning before church and he said, I've got a really special announcement to make at church today. You'll, you really want to make sure you're in the service. I said, oh, I, Dad, I'd love to, love to hear this announcement. And so I went to the church service, and I'll never forget this special announcement. He stood up there, and he said, the president of the bank was playing phone tag with me this week. And he finally got me on the phone as I was driving my car down 264. And he said, I need to read you a letter. And the president of the bank started reading a letter. And the letter stated that there was an anonymous donor that had given $750,000 to pay off the property and that the building uh, loan could, could, be start, could start to be processed immediately. All you have to do is come in and start filling out the paperwork. But there's one stipulation, the president of the bank said as he continued to read the letter. The one stipulation is this gift is to be totally anonymous. You are never to seek to find out who gave this gift. You're never to ask too many questions about uh, who might be behind this. Just accept the gift and move on with the project of building the building, the beautiful facility that you sit in here today. And my dad then said the next words, which really shocked me. He said, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you all who gave this gift. And I thought, well, dad, you can't do that. I mean, the bank president said, there's one condition. We have $750,000 on the line. You know, I'm, I'm a 16-year-old kid, but I know, don't blow this one, Dad. Seven fifty, it's a big number. He said, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to tell you who gave the gift. And I've written this verse down. I have this verse. It's just seared in my brain. He started speaking from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14, where David, building the temple, says this. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from your hands and we have given you only what you already gave us. And then he said, I know who gave the gift. God gave this gift. And I would add this morning as we contemplate ownership, God gave that gift because God already owns everything. He's entrusted you with a small portion of what he owns in this universe. And he's asked you to be a steward over it. And he's asked you to sell what you need to sell in order to make yourself more radically reliant on him. He's asked you not to hold on so tightly like this man held on so tightly. 
which caused him to walk away from Jesus. He thought his hands were full, but his hands were really empty as he walked away in that moment. What do you need to sell? The second question is this. To whom do you need to give? As you sell some things, as you sell some uh, parts of your character that you might need to, to get rid of, as maybe you even sell some things uh, financially and, and, and have a little bit of extra income, you have to ask the next question, well, what do I need to give it to? Because Jesus doesn't just give this guy a futile, uh, give him the futile command to just sell stuff. He says, once you sell it, you got to put it somewhere, invest it. Jesus says, sell and then give. So to whom do you need to give? With the freed up time, talent, or treasure that you might have from selling. As I was preparing this message, I, I realized that I'd been spending probably too much time away from my family. And I knew that Nina had a couple of college girls coming over for dinner, that she's, she's mentoring these girls in how to lead their small groups better. And I thought maybe it would be helpful for Nina if I took the girls out and, and got the girls off her hands so she could just focus on meeting with these college students. So I called her up. I said, Nina, I want to come home early tonight, and I want to take the girls out on like a daddy-daughter date night and, and just, just have a great time with them and let you meet with these college girls. You see, I sold getting every semicolon and apostrophe in the right place on these notes. And what I was able to give was to give some time to my daughters and give some time to my wife. So you say, well, where did you take your daughters on the daddy-daughter date night? It's a great restaurant. I highly recommend it. It's called KFC Taco Bell. Have you seen these? They combine a Kentucky Fried Chicken with a Taco Bell. And you have chicken and you have nachos and tacos and you just have to say, God bless America. We live in a great country. And so we ate it. We ate at the KFC Taco Bell. And then I, I, we had some more time. We went across the street to Starbucks. And Sophia said, why are we going to Starbucks? I said, well, Starbucks helps us promote conversation. You know, the KFC Taco Bell, you know, it is a little dingy in there. But, you know, Starbucks, will be able to have some conversation. She said, conversation? You know, what's that all about? I said, well, it's, you know people talking to each other. I said, what would you like to talk about? She looked at me. She goes, books everywhere. And so we continued this great evening, and I thought to myself, you know, if I continued on just plowing through and getting everything just right in this message, I wouldn't have been able to give that time to my wife and to my kids. So think about what you want to sell, but also think strategically then to whom do I need to give the freed up time talent or treasure that I've, that I've received from selling. The final question relates to the first two. The final question is just how might the answers to question one, questions one and two help you follow Jesus? Jesus says, you got to sell, you got to give, but then follow me. And I think that that's so key. It's not enough to sell and give. Jesus says, follow me, because as we follow Jesus, it helps us perpetuate that cycle of selling and giving. The more closely you can follow Jesus, the more inclined you will be to continually sell and give in your life. If you just sell and give and then kind of keep yourself in a, at an arm's distance away from Jesus, eventually you're going to lose steam, you're going to lose interest. So Jesus says, sell it, give it, but then follow me. That will help you be a lifelong seller and a lifelong giver, lifelong reliance on me. So think about that. 
How might the answers to questions one and two help you follow Jesus more closely? Is there a small group that you might need to join? Is there a Bible study you might need to start leading? Is there a gift that you need to give? Finally, while being in right position is key, and all of these things, selling, giving, and following, will help us be in right position, without the proper power source, the questions we just asked will remain just that. They'll remain questions. Because as this man walks away sad, Jesus then looks at his disciples. And I love this line. It says, Jesus looked around. As if he's looking and searching desperately for anyone that might listen to what he has to say next. He implores us all, listen, listen, you've you got to plug into the right power source. I know this is hard. I know this is difficult. But with God, all things are possible. So plug into me here. He looks around and he says to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Translation, how hard is it for those who seek to rely on something other than the Father to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus calls his disciples children. He's begging them. Remember the children that were just here? Children. Children, he's imploring them, be like children, be reliant. He looks at all of us this morning, he says, children. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for people that don't want to rely on the Father to enter the kingdom of God. It's an intentionally hyperbolic statement that Jesus makes. Intentionally impossible. A camel was the largest land animal in the Middle East at the time. It was the biggest animal anyone had ever seen. And the eye of a needle was the smallest opening that could be found in any common man's house. He said, it's like the camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. It's just not going to happen. And so the disciples, it says they're amazed or they're astonished. And they shout out, who then can be saved? They're frustrated. If it's that difficult, if it's that hard, then who could even be saved? Jesus says, get in the right position, but make sure you plug into the right power source. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. This morning, if you are willing to get into the right position, Jesus has the power to move you from radical self-reliance to radical reliance as you receive the kingdom of God with all its paradoxes like a little child in the same manner that that little child, the babe of Bethlehem, came into this world being fully reliant on God the Father. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you now for these words from your scripture. I pray that they would be sealed into our hearts this morning as we go from this place. I pray that you would help us to see what radical reliance on you might look like. I pray that the picture would grow in our minds and in our hearts in the days and the weeks to come leading up to December 25th. God, we take this time and we ask that you do with it what you will in our hearts. For Christ's sake, we pray these things.